Why is it that the one who had received only one talent dug a hole and buried the talent instead of putting it to work? He had received enough to do something and even more than enough. Scholars say that one talent was equivalent to 6,000 denarii. A denarius was the usual payment for a day's labor. At one denarius per day, a single talent was therefore worth 16 years of labor. So it's not that the man didn't have enough to invest in something and to make it work. One talent was more than enough to begin something. So then, why didn't he do it, knowing that his master was going to demand some interest? In his defense, when the master comes back, he claims fear and accuses his master of being too demanding. And the master, as we heard, does not contest this accusation, but builds his case on it. If you knew I was demanding, why didn't you do something about it? Do you think fear is a good excuse? So let's delve a little into fear. Fear is not a sin in itself, it's just an emotion, or to use a more classical term, a passion, something that we suffer, that happens to us. And it happens before a potential threat. So fear can be rational and healthy when the threat is real. A while ago we were with some of the guys at the St. John Society, we went to a hiking or camping trip into the Glacier National Park. And we were told that we could potentially meet some grizzly bears. So we had some fear, some rational fear, and we bought some you know, bear sprays and bear canisters to put our food for the night. We didn't want to meet any bear close, <laughs> close to us at least. We spot one, in fact, but he was, he was safely away. So a rational and proportionate fear makes us prudent and wise, and it's good. It's, it's a good thing to have. But more often than not, our fears are disproportionate and irrational. We are afraid to fail in general, to be left alone, to age, to be embarrassed, to lose our job, to lose our loved ones. We are afraid to sickness. For example, I was beginning the Mass and I was thinking of my homily, and an irrational fear that I have is that I will begin the Mass and I will forget everything. That I, I won't know what to do. Isn't that irrational? So we have these strange fears that come to us that are out of proportion. And these fears might linger in our minds with a, without a proper reason. Sure, all these things could happen to us in one way or the other, but without a particular reason for you to be afraid about them here and now. Often our fears begin with something true. We're not afraid of dragons, for example. We might get sick, we might fail, we will age, we will die at some point. 
but they grow disproportionately, and then we are paralyzed. They are lingering in the, in the backdrop of our minds, and they tend to freeze us. So what should we do with our disproportionate fears? Well, we should act as if we didn't have them. And I'm not saying here you, we should feel as we didn't have them because that is not up to us. We feel them, it's a passion. Sometimes we cannot change that, at least in the moment. But we can act as if we didn't have them. We should not let them have the last word, but we can do a strong movement of our will. We can make a bold act of trust in God, our Father, in whose providence we live. We could ask ourselves, what would I do if I didn't have this fear? How would I act if I didn't have this emotion in this moment? And then you do just that. Again, when this fear is irrational and disproportionate. So don't let, don't let fears rule your life. Because if you let them rule your life, you won't do much. You will most probably bury your talent and it will be no excuse. In this parable, Jesus challenges us in our fears and pushes us to move beyond them. Most of our fears are not godly. If you think about them, they are atheistic. They don't factor in God and his providence and his care and his love for us and his fatherly presence in our life. They dwell in us as if God didn't exist, as if we really were alone, as if there was no providence in our lives. And so they grow. Okay. In this parable, the master accuses the servant of being lazy. He doesn't take that excuse, though. He says, you lazy and no, wicked and lazy servant. And in fact, fear and laziness are related, are often related. Fear is an emotion and laziness is a behavior. We become lazy, we act in a lazy way. And I did some research here because Aquinas, he connects fear and reason. He says that, we, um, that, that fear might be one of the reasons why we slide into laziness. We could be afraid of the toil. We could be afraid of the effort that we have to put into something. We might be, it, it might seem too much. We might think that we cannot do it. So then we can be afraid of even trying, lest we fail. We could be afraid of desiring something, lest I become disappointed. We could be afraid of beginning a relationship, lest I get hurt. And so fear leads to inaction. I am afraid, I don't wanna even try. I don't want to even begin. And so I'm paralyzed. Instead of risking, of going out, then we stay in our pajamas. We stay in the, in the spot. We don't want to go out. We are afraid. And we little by little become more lazy. But we could be lazy for other reasons, not only because of fear. We could become lazy 
because we little by little get used to indulging and gratifying our immediate desires. And so by doing that, but always saying yes to our immediate desires, we weaken our capacity to deny our moods, our superficial desires for the sake of something bigger. It's like our will gets weaker if we never deny ourselves. Or we could be lazy because we are sad. Sadness is also an emotion that leads to laziness, a behavior. Isn't that true, that when you are sad, you don't want to get out of bed? You become lazy. But then when you indulge in that behavior, you're even more, 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 more sad. Hmm? Sadder, you would say. Great. Or we could be lazy because we lost hope. We become hopeless, and there's no hope. Why even bother? Why even try? The reality is that the master in this parable says to the servant, lazy and wicked servant, because laziness led him to selfishness. He began by just being lazy, but ended up wicked, selfish, just thinking about himself. He just buried the talent and didn't do anything. And if you think about it, selfishness, uh, laziness leads you to selfishness because you can't do much for others. You're too self-centered. You're too, paying too much attention to your emotions, to your world, to your feelings, to what you want to do. And even if you would like to go beyond yourself, there's a moment where it seems that you lost that capacity. Someone needs to pull you out of that hole. How can we combat laziness? What can we do if we see in us this behavior? And we all have a tendency to slide in this behavior one way or the other. It's a weakness. It's a human weakness. Well, I want to suggest three things. The first one is identify what emotion is behind your laziness. Is it fear? Is it sadness? Is it hopelessness? Is it cynicism? So address the emotion. See why you feel that way. Once you realize I'm lazy because of this emotion that is behind this behavior, then you need to address it. You need to, you need to see if it's a proportional emotion, if it fits reality. Not every emotion of, us, of ours fit reality. Some emotions are out of place. And then you need to speak to it if it's out of place or irrational. If you don't speak to your emotion, if you let your emotion have the last word on your life, then they will tend to govern you. They will claim that last word in your life. And you will make decisions uh, ruled by your emotions, which is no good. Emotions are good in themselves, of course. They're God-given. We need them. They're the gas of the car, if you want. But they're not the steer wheel. Emotions are energy to go out and to do things, but they shouldn't have the direction of your life. For that, God gave us intelligence and will and the Holy Spirit, of course, that comes to us and guides us. So speak to your emotion. Trust in God. He's not too demanding. That's a lie. He's your father. He doesn't harvest where he, where he didn't uh, plant. It's a lie. That's the lie of the enemy. So trust in God. 
Also trusting yourself and trusting your safety network and your friends and your family and the people around you. And then just move forward. So the first thing is identify your emotion behind your laziness. The second thing is imagine what kind of person you would become if you were to overcome your laziness. If you were to study more or work out better or risk more in your relationships or pray more regularly, what would your life look like if you multiply your talents? Try to picture the goodness and beauty that you're missing by your laziness, what you're missing out. Try to think about it. Think, for example, what if I do this for a whole year? What if I read scripture for a whole year? What if I do sit-ups for a whole year? What if I go for a run for a whole year, you know, three times a week? What if I do works of mercy for a whole year and visit the homeless or help out in some place? What would I look like? What would my soul look like? And what type of person I would become? What if I study consistently for a whole year? So that you make yourself excited about that goal. Because if you're not excited about that goal, why would you bother? Why would you even try? So you want to see the beauty, the goodness that God is proposing to you when he gave you those talents. So that then you can work on them. And finally, you want to practice some discipline. Once you got excited, when you, once you got motivated, once you saw why is it that you have to put some effort into this, then you want to lay it down as a discipline. Because multiplying your talents is a long-term goal, isn't it? It's not something that you do from one day to the other. The master takes a long time, says the parable, to come back. He leaves space for the servants to invest their talents and to put them to work. And there's no multiplication of talents without discipline, without laborious effort, day in and day out, without constancy. In the opening prayer, I don't know if you paid attention, we, we said to, the, to God, Lord, help us to love you with constancy. Like every day, in every circumstance, with perseverance, so that we can multiply our talents. Your talents are God-given not yours to do whatever you want. We know as Christians we are administrators of our life. We receive these talents so that we could put them to work and everyone else around us can somehow benefit from them. So it's not up to you to decide how many talents you begin with. You can begin with one, with two, or with five. It's not up to you. You don't want to compare yourself with others. You don't want to look around we have more than enough to begin doing something with them, don't we? we? We do. So we can begin by making a list of your talents. Assess your gifts, intellectual gifts, emotional, social, educational, physical, spiritual, economical. Make a list of your talents, of the opportunities that you have in life. Are you smart? No, Father. Yes, good, then that's a talent, you're smart. Are you young? Some of us are young, 
Some of us are not, but being young is a talent for sure. It doesn't last long, but you have it. Are you sociable? Is it easy for you to connect with others, to bring people together? That's a talent. Did you receive a good education? Were you able to go to good schools and colleges? That's a talent. Do you have a good family that supports you, that is behind you? That's a talent. Do you have faith? That's a great talent. It's a huge talent. Do you believe in God? And this is a rhetoric question. So make a list. Receive them. Be grateful for them. Begin by assessing them. And then develop a plan, a rule of life that factors in your talents. A time to study, a time to work out, a time to pray, a time to work, a time to do works of mercy, a time to cultivate friendships, a time to rest, a time to you know, connect with culture around us, a time to read, a time to go out in nature. You want to have a godly schedule, weekly and then annual, that will reflect your priorities, a rule of life that will reflect your priorities and your, and your talents. So you make sure that you are putting them to work. So don't just float adrift with the current of your circumstances or emotions, but claim ownership over your life by doing what you have to do in each moment, by being connected with what you are doing in each moment with all your heart. And for that, you need discipline. Discipline preserves the intensity of our love. As we cultivate discipline, our talents grow, multiply, and we're able to channel our love productively. We become more loving, more fruitful, more productive. And then the master will come and you will share with him his table. 